Hello, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on where you're joining us from today. Uh, hello and welcome to the very first Pragmatic Product Chat of the year. My name is Rebecca Calagaris. I am the Vice President of Marketing and Product Strategy at Pragmatic Institute, and more importantly for you, the host of today's event. All right, for those of you not familiar with Pragmatic Institute, uh, welcome to the family. Pragmatic Institute specializes in training companies on how to be truly market and data-driven in order to create products that delight users and your stakeholders. So before we get started, though, a couple of housekeeping items. One, a recording of this webinar and a copy of the slides, as well as the handouts that we talk through and talk about today, will be available after, the, uh, after this call, and we'll also send out an email with links to all that information. Second, questions. We love questions. I think everyone here is at this point probably overly intimately aware of how Zoom works, uh, but you can pop your questions into the chat area and we will get through those, most of those at the end of the call today. All right. So today I am extremely excited to have our two guests with us. Uh, Amy Graham, a certified pragmatic product instructor, product expert, product manager extraordinaire, and Jim Dibble, who is actually co-director of our brand new design practice here. He has a lifetime worth of experience, worth both in in-house and as a strategic design consultant. And one of the reasons we brought everyone together here on this topic is, as many of you know, we've just really announced and released the fact that Pragmatic has expanded, right, from product management, product marketing, and data to also include design. So we have a new design practice coming this later this year, but really our first foray into this area is a class specifically for product managers and how to work uh, more effectively with design and really leverage those design capabilities and design thinking to make the most successful product. So what better way to kick off that initiative than, of course, to have Jim and Amy talk about it, bring their two perspectives in and give you a, a bit of a taste of what you'll see in that new course. So welcome, Jim, and welcome, Amy. Thanks, Rebecca. Thank you. All right, just to give you, it's a pretty casual conversation, so not a lot of slides, but just to give you a little bit of a roadmap of where we're heading today. Uh, first and foremost, right, it's about these two, when you think about product and you think about design, there's so much overlap about both sort of the goals and the focus of these areas, but they, they sort of evolved a little bit in isolation. So they come with, with different languages and sometimes different approaches, and that can occasionally, as some of you can probably attest, right, lead to some tension. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about how we break those walls down. How do we understand how these two groups work? Uh, and then how do we partner effectively? And one of the, you know, partner effectively through language, through sharing common goals, and through some of the really key assets and artifacts that come in there. So hopefully that sounds good. If there's something else you're hoping to get out of here again, go ahead and pop it in the chat and we'll be happy to cover it later. But enough of me, let's get to the experts, Jim and Amy. All right, guys, first question. In your own experience, you both come with a lot of experience, both as instructors, but also in the trenches and actually doing this. Can we talk about the sort of friction or misunderstanding between these two teams and how that's affected sort of the outputs, the product quality and success? Mm. Jim, do you want to take yeah, it off? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll kick it off. Okay. Um, I think, you know, uh, one of the big um, uh, issues is, is research. Um, I, 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 it's really important for product managers to go out and do Nahita research and understand, um, you know, who are the users, who are the buyers, 
Um, but that's, it's a really important part of the design process as well. And so it's really easy for us to step on each other's toes as we're planning who's gonna do which research when. I, I experienced that in, you know, early in my career when, um, you know, working with a PM who was having conversations with sales and with buyers and our small design team was having conversations with the users. And that led to a lot of churn um, because there was, there was a, a lack of shared context for how we were gonna make decisions about the product. Um, based on different perspectives that we were hearing. Um, and, and, you know, another challenge I think I've encountered in the past is figuring out as a designer how to request feedback and how to encourage PMs to give almost outside-in feedback. So not feedback from their own personal stance, but from what they know about the users or the buyers of the product. So from my experience, I completely agree with Jim um, in terms of stepping on each other's toes, that there can be a lot of friction there. Um, duplicating efforts, you know, the, the statement that I had in my head as you were talking, Jim, was we end up working harder, not smarter. We don't leverage the value that each of the two parties can bring to the table. Um, I've been super fortunate in my career, so I've worked with some really awesome designers. Um, so I don't have a lot of bad stories. But I do know that when I didn't have access to a designer, we put ourselves at risk, obviously, for quality. So we had, you know, user experiences that were less than ideal. We had people constantly complaining about it wasn't intuitive. They, they didn't want to use it. They didn't like this. They didn't like that. Um, so there's the quality issues. I also had bandwidth issues as a product manager trying, you know, when we didn't have access to design resources. I was being a PM, I was being a designer, I was being a project manager, um, you know, that's not good. So if I'm doing design and I'm creating mock-ups and low fidelity or high fidelity prototypes and I'm practicing my flair for design, I also have bandwidth issues and guess what I'm not doing, which was all those other things. So it can lead to so many challenges. I think it's a great point too, Amy. You touched a little bit about how it depended on how you had, what kind of design resources you had access, uh, access to. And I think one of the research that, that Jim and Shannon and, and we've done as we've, we've kind of built out this class is we've we looked and seen a lot of different types of structures for design and how design works with product teams. And I'd love if you guys could talk through some of these and then we can maybe take a quick poll in, in the chat about what kind of uh, structure these are uh, callers have at their organization. Yeah, sure. I, I think there's really two issues here. I, one is on a corporate level, where do PM and design fall on the org chart? You know, does design report into product or are they, are they parallel? Does design in marketing or engineering? Um, and so if you're the, a VP or director of product, that's, that's a concern for you. How are you going to partner with the person who's in charge of design? But I think more of the research we did was really on how uh, product managers who are individual contributors, how are they working with designers in their work of pushing the product forward? Um, and you know, we saw two main ways in which design is structured within the organization. One is design resources are embedded in the product teams. And, and so if, if uh, you're, you're a product manager who's leading a, a product or a portion of a product, then you have a designer or set of designers who are dedicated to that. Um, so we, we call that embedded, an embedded model. Um, and the other model is where there's a centralized pool of designers uh, and you can draw from those if you can make the case that your particular project needs designers right now. 
Um, and that, that we typically call more of an agency model. So it's as if you have an internal design agency and you have to put up resources to bid on, on um, using those resources at any given time. And product managers, you know, who fall in those two camps have, have to like do a different dance about how they're going to connect with the designers that they work with, whether it's a long-term relationship or just, you know, a, a short kind of contractual relationship that you have on your project. And it yeah. makes a oh, go ahead. Amy. Sorry, Rebecca, I was just going to say, I don't know if I have a whole lot to add to that. I've actually been exposed to both of those models that Jim described. And then we had a designer that was part of a consulting firm that was outsourced. It wasn't internal that we also contracted with, um, but yeah. Yeah, definitely there are cases where there are no design resources that the company hasn't invested yet. So you have no internal designers. And as Amy said, sometimes that means as the PM, you have to do the design work. Um, and then cases where um, uh, you, you hire outside designers, it's kind of an agency model, but you're never going to see them again. All right, so I think other things that came out in that research were some of the other sort of common misperceptions, uh, maybe between the, the two groups, because we talked about designers and PMs and, and PMs about designers. And maybe we could touch a little bit about some of those perceptions, even if we didn't have them in our own careers, Amy and Jim, but some of the stuff that we saw in the research. Yeah, I think, um, you know, on the, on the, from the product manager's perspective, um, you know, sometimes there's a view that the design is there to, to come in late in the process and kind of make it pretty, make it usable. Um, and that you can just slide them in in the last part of the process to do that. And that, you know, you'll have a coherent product out of that. And that, that, that often, there's not enough continuity um, when, when you view design in like such a small box. Um, it makes it hard to create a coherent, cohesive product um, that really fits users' needs. Um, and I think on the design, for, you know, designers we talked to, there's, you know, you've experienced this, I'm sure, a lot of confusion between product management and project management. And wow. so, and because product managers often take on the additional role of project management, there's kind of the understanding from designers that the, that's what product managers contribute or that's the big thing that they're responsible for. Yeah. I had an aha moment once, Rebecca, um, in my career where I had this perception that designers were for UX research only, so to speak, right? So it was like, they were gonna study the user from the perspective of how do they interact with the product? Where do their eyes go? Do they use their right hand or left hand? Where do they navigate to first, you know? Um, and so then it was like, wait, what? they're going to help us do research, but they research from totally different perspectives. But I found out and I learned that the research efforts are actually more similar than I had thought. And they're very, very complementary. and together combined. It's a really powerful thing so that you can have a holistic, holistic view of not only your persona, but what's happening out there. An excellent segue to the next conversation, right? Because there is, there's so much in common and, and we do sometimes hear about the tension, but, but at, at Pragmatic, and particularly as we've explored this topic more and more since we brought Jim and Shannon on board, there is such an opportunity for these things to connect and sort of have a, a, a full multi force multiplier of, of how they go. But let's talk a little bit about how these ecosystems are defined and how they map up. 
Sure, that'd be great. And actually, if, if we could just share the slide, um, you know, as as uh, product managers who who've been through pragmatic training, um, you know, your model of of how um, products are created is the pragmatic framework, right? That's that's the way that the the uh, organization you know, takes care of those activities, picks which ones are most important for your particular situation in order to create great products and, and, and make sure that they fly off the shelves. Um, and so if you come from the design world, this is your model of how um, products are created. So the, if you show the pragmatic framework to designers, they may be a little confused. Um, instead, um, here, this model is from um, the Design Council, which is a uh, uh, UK-based, um, organization that studies uh, design and designers and how they work. Um, but typically designers see their process as a two-phased process. Um, first, um, understanding the problem and making sure we're solving the right problem and understanding all the context around the problem. That's the left diamond. And then the right diamond is then, well, if that's the problem, what's, what's the solution? Let's toy around with different potential solutions and then let's choose one and move forward with it. Um, and so this is really common across designers, and this is the way that they tend to look at uh, the overall process. Now, again, this is the point where there's potential for friction, if you, if you don't understand that, because designers uh, want to frame the problem, understand the problem, understand the context, maybe reframe the problem that you've given to them. And that can feel a little itchy if, as product manager, you're like, it's my job to go out and find market problems and then just give them to you. Um, so there's, I think there's a real opportunity here, as long as you're aware that designers often want to participate in some sense in that research and that defining of the problem, um, or at least understanding how the problem affects the persona. Uh, and so if we look at these superimposed on top of each other, you can see that there are opportunities to use designers to leverage their skills throughout the process, not just the, that, you know, part where you're defining the product. Ah, this is it. Um, yeah, uh, Aaron, if we could go a little bit earlier, I think. Yeah, this is a, 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 the ebook that we've created to kind of talk about, you know, how to navigate all the different types of designers that are out there um, and what understand what kinds of skills your particular designers that you have available to you um, uh, might be able to contribute. That's fine, you, Aaron, go, you can go back down. Um, and so just kind of looking at the framework, um, if we kind of separate, you know, the left-hand side from the right-hand side, if you're, the activities on the left-hand side are all about strategy, figuring out what is the problem, um, who are the people that we're trying to serve, and the right-hand side is all about execution, um, figuring out what's the solution and then getting it to market. Um, and likewise, if we look at the top and the bottom, the top is all about understanding the market and, and the, the people who are out there, what problems that they face, uh, and the bottom is all about figuring out what needs to go into the product based on what the outside world needs. So it's kind of almost an outside inside view. Um, and so in this ebook, we've just taken a look at ways that you can think about um, design disciplines fitting within this model of um, external talking to the, to the market or to users and internal um, looking at 
uh, thinking through the product uh, and what you want the product to do. And so with this, we've kind of mapped out um, different disciplines within design. Um, so if you want help doing you know, market research, then UX designer, design researchers are the people that you wanna bring along as a partner. Um, whereas if you wanna see how the current product is working right now um, and whether it's meeting people's needs, then you probably want some usability researchers who can help you look at the current product, see what the problems are with it. Um, Cause that's closer to execution on the right hand side. That was a really quick explanation of that, but it's it's all described in the ebook. And I know Aaron will will send a link to the ebook. We'll also put it in the in the uh, email afterwards. But that was really illuminative. Illuminative. I'm gonna make up words now. Uh, for me, when we when we talked about that, right, the design. There are so many different design practices, and we talked a little bit about how you work with designers. It changes depending on what kind of model, right? Sort of the the agency external, the internal agency, but it also really depends on what kind of designers you have um, and where their focus, their skill sets, uh, their skill sets today, sort of their interest in expanding. Um, but but I think one of the things is that we also see in our annual survey is it it is tends to be an understaffed function, right? So I think when we did the sort of ratios, there was. 40 times as many designers in most of the tech companies we work with than there were designers, right? So developers, sorry, developers, 40 times yeah. the number of developers as there was designers in tech companies. So Amy, how can product managers help with that? How can we advocate for more? How can we help show uh, the, the impact that they have uh, for those of us who maybe don't have the resources that they'd like internally? Yeah, so <clears throat> I took three approaches um, in my career and one of the things that I did was I provided visibility and transparency into the bandwidth issues. So that's the first place I started was I can't be everything to everyone. Um, there's a significant bandwidth issue. If you want me to be doing this, then you need to free me up from this. And then I also at the same time, sort of in parallel, started to pull in the concept or the, the challenge, I should say, around skill set. I'm not a designer. I don't know how to design things. I don't, I didn't go to school for that. I don't have a certification in that. You know, if you want me doing design, just be aware I'm practicing my flair as we call it. Um, so I started to really uh, create a ton of visibility into my time, bandwidth issues, skill set issues, how critical and healthy it was to have like a separation of duties. Um, and then I also started to gather data. So I looked at our support tickets. I looked at our win-loss data. I looked at any sort of input or piece of data I could get my hands on that would speak to um, usability, adoption, you know, complaints around this is not intuitive, or if somebody were to use our mobile app one time and then never come back in. And then I pulled that data together and used it to build a business case to get design resources either contracted as a consultant or get them in-house. Um, so I sort of did all three of these things in parallel to build that case. Um, but the first thing was, you know, going back to that skill set and really making sure that people in my organization understood it is different. Not everybody knows how to do this. And if we don't know how to do this, what is that risk? Quality, set, you know, customer satisfaction, all those things um, that you all know. Um, so that's, that's how I made the case. 
Great. All right. So we talked a little bit about the differences. We talked a little bit about sort of the organizational structures and, and operational structures. Um, and we've gotten a couple of questions about like, particularly if I have uh, the agency model, whether an internal agency or an external agency, like how do I get them up to speed to make them uh to, to like really optimize how effective they can be. And that brings us really, I think, nicely into the next thing we're gonna talk about, uh, which is some of the ways that we share context in an area where both I think design and product both have a lot of experience and understanding of that, and that's personas. Um, so let's, let's just hop into personas. And uh, could you guys touch, I mean, just, I think everyone on, uh, most people on this call probably are intimately aware of personas, but talk a little bit about sort of their importance of personas and the application of personas in the product life cycle. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so before coming to Pragmatic, I worked uh, at Cooper, uh, which was founded by Alan Cooper. So the, the kind of... Um, father of user personas. So kind of, if, if you took the build class, you heard all about Alan, um, but we've used personas in our practice um, and a lot of designers use them um, as a way to um, uh, really kind of understand um, how the people that they're trying to serve are different from, from themselves um, and what particular needs and goals uh, they need to meet. Uh, it's, it's, we find it, yeah. It's really great. Uh, you can use personas to share context. Um, and what's really wonderful about that is once your team has that context, um, you know, you go out and talk to users, you, you, you create a persona, you can communicate that, your research insights internally, but then they can use that to align on the, uh, what, uh, who the target user is, um, kind of motivate them to solve core problems because as humans, we always do better when we understand, you know, who it is we're trying to serve. Uh, and so having an understanding that can really motivate them. Uh, it can also um, help them imagine new solutions that make sense for your target user um, and uh, uh, support them in making decisions. When someone proposes a new idea, um, you can evaluate that idea in terms of the persona. Does this does this really make sense when we think about, you know, the technical understanding and the context of the persona uh, that we're trying to, to uh, uh, serve? Um, and then finally, personas are even great beyond the product team, project team. Uh, you can use them within your organization to tell stories about how you envision uh, the, um, your target user using the product. Um, so rather than just giving a, a tour uh, you know, a, what we call a real estate tour of the interface of your product, we can instead tell a story about uh, the particular user you're targeting and how this product solution is going to make their life better. Yeah, I echo what Jim says. You know, for those of you who've come through class, we talk about personas being a, you know, factual biography of somebody that's a significant part of your population in your market. And it is dangerous to build to a faceless user. If you don't understand who those people are out there that you're solving problems for, you don't know what features you have to have and what features you could potentially leave out. And it, it just provides so much good context. And as Jim pointed out, you know, there's multiple audiences that will use personas or multiple um, purposes for those. I used to share them with development, like my engineers. I used to share them with even our quality assurance testers, uh, obviously designers, I used to give them to the marketing teams. 
there's just so much goodness there. And, and I, it is dangerous to try to develop um, for people that you, you don't know who they are, what they look like and what their world uh, looks like. Because otherwise you design for yourself. Yeah. Right? And you, we if you think what you would like. Yeah. Um, but that, that's like buying a gift for another person and just getting your favorite thing for them. Yeah. For the exactly. thing you always wanted. Like that doesn't make sense. Yeah. We are often very, very different from the actual people in our market who are using our products. Yeah. So true. Two things on, on this. One, would you guys say that for the most part, a designer's idea of a persona and a product management idea of a persona are the same or what, where are their differences? Mm. Yeah, I, I would say that the, um, the main emphasis or, 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 or lens through which product managers look at um, their work and the product to be created is problems, right? Like what are... The current problems, what are market problems, um, and so that tends to be the, the the focus when you create the persona. Like, what problems is this persona facing right now? Designers tend to look at it as goals. Who are the people we're trying to serve, and what goals are they trying to achieve? Um, and so, sometimes the the way that that designers will create personas emphasize goals that that, that the personas want to achieve more than the problems that they currently face. And so the nice thing is that goals and problems are really mirror images of each other. If you, if you have a problem, it's probably because it's something that's serving as a roadblock to your greater goal that you're trying to achieve. Or if you know what a persona's goals are, then you can see what, what's in your current product that is not helping them achieve those goals or standing in the way. So what problems exist right now? Yeah, and Jim, just to add um, a tiny bit to that, and tell me if you agree with this, I think one cannot survive without the other. So, like, you can't create the goals unless you understand the problem, and, you know, you need the problem to create the goals, like, they they have to coexist. Yeah, and it's, I, I think it's really a, a, a great thing to add to your Nahida research, maybe you're inviting a design researcher to come along, but if not, you know, when you uncover a problem, ask why, why is that a problem? You know, what is it about that that's a, that's a problem for you? What does that stand in the way of? And that will help you get at the goals. So it, it, like a, a technique for, for gathering those higher level goals that you wanna bring back to your team, is just ask, why is that a problem? What's it, what's it standing in the way of? All right, we got much more questions on this, but when Amy, because I know you do this every day when you teach. A quick uh, summary of the difference between buyers and user personas. Yeah, sure, no problem. So there are lots of different personas, um, but in general, two primary, buyer personas, user personas. So when it comes to buyer personas, we say those are the people who have put on the buyer hat. So they're the ones making the purchasing decision, cutting the check, so to speak. They care about things like price, risk, return on investment. Um, if any of you are involved in the world of RFPs, requests for proposals, you probably know that there can be a ton of buying criteria that sneaks into those RFPs. Um, sometimes we look at those and we're like, what, why is that on there? Nobody will ever use that. Well, maybe it's buying criteria. The buyer has to see that, that we have that feature present in order just to, you know, for us to get our foot in the door with them. So that's a buyer persona. 
user personas at the end of the day, they, they are the people who are using your product. And what they ultimately care about is when they use your product, is their problem being solved? Um, you know, so big difference in a B2B environment, business to business, it can often be two different people. One person is acting as the buyer, somebody different is actually the user. In a business to consumer environment, B2C, it's very, very common for one person to play both of those roles. They are the buyer and the user. Whatever your world looks like, just make sure you understand how those roles break down and you've got those folks documented. Great. And then one more thing, because I know, I know Jim's got a good answer for this. Uh, Mel talks a little bit about sort of being at a company where, uh, you know, the, the feedback from the UX team would be that it would be $20,000 to create a persona and they could only have so many. And how do they ever get started if it's got all these pieces? How would you tackle that? You know, the, the ideal full flushed persona uh, that might, might be versus like giving everybody some context to get started. Yeah, so, so we typically talk about uh, making use of the knowledge that you have in-house already from your interaction um, with, with users, um, which might be you hold that as a product manager or it might be more distributed and using that to create a provisional persona. So, you know, sketching out kind of a hypothesis based on what you know already and the interactions you've had with users who, um, you know, what is it we know about them? Um, what do we think their goals are based on our conversations with them? Um, what problems do we know that they encounter? Um, just to kind of make sense of the one type or several different types of users that you've already encountered. Um, this is something you can do in a workshop and it's a good starting point, right? You, you, you can use a provisional persona or sometimes we call them proto personas um, as, a, as a way to, to get started and direct your energies. And it also can be helpful in helping you decide, you know, where are the gaps in our knowledge? Maybe we don't know enough about this person. Help you figure out what kinds of questions you'd wanna ask as you go out and do user research or Nihito research to understand more about these people. So it doesn't have to be a big investment. You have more confidence uh, in, in the, your personas if you've done more research behind them. Right. All right. Uh, so then, uh, I mean, before we move on from personas, Jim or Amy, anything you want to add? Um, I, I did see a request in the chat uh, for an example. Um, and so going back to, to goals and problems, you know, if we think about a typical user for Salesforce, Right, so their goal is to close deals by the end of the quarter, right? Um, but does does is there does Salesforce product close the deals for them? Yeah. No, there are roadblocks that get in the way of them closing the deals, like poor communication, um, difficulty keeping track of. Um, you know the the flow of contact information um, with with your uh, uh, with your potential customers. Um, so there are many problems that get in the way of making sure that you close deals and meet quota. All right, so we talked a little bit about the, the kind of combined goals and desires of both groups, how they map up together, how different design practices map up to sort of the, the areas of focus that you as a product manager might have uh, as it's mapped to the framework.
work. We've talked about a tool that kind of starts to combine some of those contexts uh, context, uh, into a document that allows us to share it. Let's go like a step further, right? So we've got that. And as we go from how do we use these two groups to optimize the research and the different perspectives in there, but then how do we also combine the power of product and design in, in sort of the execution phases of that? Um, and I know one of the things you guys talk about with that is sort of how the, a really good partnership really leads to innovation. So I'm going to let you guys dig in a little bit more on that. Yeah. Um, I think the, the, the best place to start in creating that, that partnership is to really um, get curious about each other's process, right? You don't need to do the other person's process, but the more you know about a designer's process, the better you're able to provide them those opportunities or provide them that context that helps them do better work um, and uh, you know, help them understand your process and how decision-making occurs. Um, I think a really good way to, to start on, on collaboration is in research. Um, so, uh, you know, just as, as pragmatic product managers, you're practicing the HEDA research. Um, quite often designers and design researchers are used to doing exploratory research with users, maybe even before they have a product in their hands. So bringing them along um, or partnering with them to, uh, plan that research. So you're not stepping on each other's toes, but you're able to bring each other's perspective, bring both perspectives to the table when you're, you're out talking to users. Jim, everything you just talked about um, will build trust, which is mm. incredibly important. So if you get curious, as you, I love how you put that, if you get curious about their world and what they do and the value that they can contribute, and then they do the same for you, it just will naturally help build that trust um, in addition to credibility, which helps to build trust as well, um, which I think is really, really important. So. Awesome. All right. So uh, we're going to do, so one of the things that was really, again, uh, eye-opening for me as we've gone through this process is we talk, uh, if everybody could just raise your hand uh, in, in the little uh, reactions, if you've attended our build course. Um, and if you have, then you've certainly heard it talk about, you know, a couple, things, the importance of giving context to development, and our good friend Sarah, uh, <laughs> our good friend Sarah, who's in college and trying to finish up in, in a fast uh, aspect. But, but I think what's really interesting is when you take a look at the context we're talking about in build and what we're doing and the way that really partnering with the designer just completely explodes the type of context that we can that, that, we, that we get and that we're able to share. So uh, if, if Jim and Amy, if you kind of want to walk through this exercise, that would be great. Yeah, so one of the things that, as we said, often happens when you're you know, presenting a market problem to designers is that they designers have learned to question the brief. That's part of their training, that like if someone gives you a problem to solve, ask lots of questions and ask if it's the right problem that we're trying to solve. That can be really frustrating as a product manager, I understand it. Um, but the reason that designers do this is both to understand the full context of, of what the problem is, but also they wanna kind of open up the problem so that they can um, come up with multiple potential solutions, not just the first thing that comes to mind. Um, so in this example from the, from the build course, uh, Sarah is a college student who needs to register for classes uh, every, every semester and uh, wants to make sure that the classes that she picks are ones that are actually gonna lead her to a successful graduation. Uh, so 
her problem is really that um, it's kind of a guessing game to, to select courses and make sure that she's on track to, to graduate on time. Um, and so you might um, encounter as a product manager that designers wanna open that up and like, let's explore that further and let's look at different ways that we can frame that problem. Um, and that, that can feel threatening, but it really leads to a good end because it helps them come up with better solutions. So one way that uh, design, one tool that designers have is how might we statements. Um, so basically rather than looking at it as a problem, look at it as more of an opportunity that we as a team can open up new possibilities for our persona. So if we take that problem that Sarah had before, there are different ways we can frame that um, using how might we statements. So how might we enable Sarah to plan her academics all the way through to graduation? Or how might we help Sarah choose between multiple classes that fit in her schedule? Um, how might we give Sarah a clear understanding of all her graduation requirements? Um, or even ways to make um, Sarah feel um, more confident and in this process or, or more of a sense of enjoyment in which feels like a really stressful situation, how might we help Sarah to feel a sense of enjoyment when she selects her, her classes? So Jim, um, I think what you're talking about is the how might we, that's, that's a technique, right? Yeah. To open up that, that space and you didn't use the word creativity, but you alluded to the fact that it will allow you to think about possible solutions. And I just wanted to put out there the word create creativity. It allows you to get in that creative space and really supports that process. Um, so I think that that's critical. I know that there's some other techniques that we plan on talking about in the design course itself um, as ways to also accomplish this. Um, but this yeah, and really those fun. are those are great prompts that you can use as an individual when you're thinking about, wow, what are different ways to solve this problem? But it's also a great tool that you can use collectively. So if you, you or your designer plan an ideation session where you bring everybody together from the team, you can use those how might we statements as a way to generate lots of potential ideas that could be part of a solution that you create. Yeah. I think another interesting thing is the, the, the how might we had about emotion, right? I mean, I think for some product managers that gets a little like, ooh, it's that, you know, it, it maybe it's softer than they're used to or how they think, but it's such an important part when you're talking about the experience, right? The experience, not just what you click, it's how it makes you feel. And I think that's an important perspective as well that the designers bring to the table. So even if it makes us all a little uncomfortable, uh, it, you know, when it's grounded really in an understanding of the persona, it's both really powerful and really necessary to building the strongest sort of products and outcomes that we can. That's a really good point, Rebecca. We talk about in the build class how important empathy is. Um, and so I think that's what you're talking about, that emotional aspect of things and building that empathy. And the more empathy we can build, the better we can understand that. Ultimately, the better product we can bring to market. All right. So, I mean, we've talked a little bit about the build course and a little bit about giving a little tease of what's in the design course. Can you guys just talk a little bit about why you're so excited? about the design course and what it brings and what you're really hoping that, that it, from an outcome perspective, like how this can really sort of change and pivot the way we all sort of build and deliver successful products. Mm, where do we start? 
Mm. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm really excited about helping teams supercharge this relationship between product management and design um, because they both have such a, an outside in focus when they're, when they're in the ideal state um, of their practices, uh, kind of supporting each other in that outside in way of solving problems um, can really help bring that change to the whole organization. Yeah, I'd say for me, um, as an instructor teaching the pragmatic courses every day, uh, you know, we've recognized that there's this additional content that we can bring to the table that would give our audience uh, and our market value. We've also heard from our market. So we're practicing what we preach. We've gathered data and we have research that supports that there's more that you all want to learn um, in terms of not just the partnership between product managers and engineering, but design and how we can partner with design and why it's so important and how does that function work and um, you know everything that we've talked about and that we're gonna discuss in the class. So I'm really, really excited that we're going to bring that content and that material to market now and we can help fill in. I don't wanna call them gaps necessarily, but we can help fill in that story um, and make it more cohesive, you know, between, for example, focus and build. And I just think it's going to be awesome. And it's one of the big, big challenges that I faced as a product manager. Um, and, you know, as I said, clearly, we know that people in our market are experiencing it as well. So I'm super excited to solve a pervasive challenge that is out there related to this. I think it's going to add a ton of value. So I was looking at the chat and the good news is you've convinced Jason uh, that he needs more design resources and there's nothing but opportunity here. So yay. Uh, but Jason, I think actually asked like a really good and actually really practical question too. Like in his case, the design resource is going to sit under the product umbrella, but he knows this is not his expertise. So how does he recognize a good one? Right. And that can be true even whether you're hiring or whether you're hiring a, a, an agency partner, like if this isn't my expertise, what should I ask them? What should I look for to be like this is the kind of strategic designer uh, that I want to bring on board. So Jim, I don't know if you have any thoughts, feel free to chime in. Um, and Jason, my brain went to a kind of a tactical spot. So please let me know if, you know, if this isn't what you're asking, but I like, so if that were me, if I were, um, you know, overseeing the product team and the design was going to report into me, but I didn't have any design experience, what I would do is I wouldn't lead on somebody. I would find somebody from the design space that I could consult with or that could help be a mentor um, that could either help answer some of these questions that you just asked us or see if they could participate in that process with me. Um, like, for example, I've never been an engineer. I've never written a, you know, a line of code in my life, but I had to hire engineers. So I partnered uh, with an engineer that I trust who has a lot of experience. And I asked him if he would help me in that process. Um, so that was one thing that came to mind for me is getting somebody that could, you know, partner with you or consult with you um, on that actual hiring and bringing them on board. Um, Jim, I don't know if you have any other suggestions. Yeah, I think, I think you also want to do a little bit of an, an analysis sure. of what your needs are. Like, do you need someone to help you understand you know, users and their current workflow because you want to improve it. So if that's the case, then you want someone who has design research skills. Yeah. Or do you want someone who's going, do you need someone who's going to be able to create a more, you know, visually cohesive product? Because right now it feels like 
Frankenstein. Um, in that case, you need a visual designer. So we talk about in that ebook, we talk about some of these different practices and you know where they can help. Um, and that can really help set you up for, you know, well, what do I particularly need in, in our particular project and in, in the work that we're doing for this product? Um, when you interview them, I would definitely, you know, ask them about their process. So uh, try to find out how are, can they articulate their process and um, how, how do they collaborate? How do they prefer to collaborate with their collaborators and try to find something that's a good fit um, with the way in which you um, run your project. Do you want someone that, that uh, can help you define how design and the rest of the product team will collaborate? Hopefully you do if you're new to design. So, so try to find out how they've done that in the past. Great advice. All right, Erin, can you uh, share the framework up for, our, for the next question? We got a good question from a, a very good friend of ours, Lolita, uh, about sort of, we talked a little bit about how design can interact with product on sort of the whole of the framework and that different kinds of designers would be there. But just in terms of the course, the design course, where are we focusing in on those connection points in that course? Which boxes are we, uh, are we covering in terms of the interactions and integrations in this course? Yeah, so we're really focused um, on kind of what's, what's under planning here. Um, and in business, so user personas, so uh, getting some more um, nuance into how to use user personas and, and how you can leverage them throughout the project and have designers help you with that. Um, use scenarios, so setting up the, the context for how um, the user um, currently uses the product or currently solves the problem and how they might solve it in the future. And I would definitely say innovation. Um, so designers have a great toolkit for looking at innovative solutions to problems um, and looking at borrowing from other places, uh, inspiration. Um, and so if uh, we'll, we'll talk about how designers help with that, but also um, give you some practice in um, doing some ideation so that you're comfortable participating um, with designers who might lead you in that. Um, and I would always say that market problems, uh, that designers can help you with those. Um, they can help you um, understand them more deeply, maybe do the, help do the research to uncover them. And I think with the market problems, like, you know, we would say every course touches on that to some degree, right? It's such a cornerstone. But what's really neat about the design course is it not only talks about the market problems, but how those, the sort of evolution of a problem from sort of the big market problems that we talk about in a positioning statement that we uncover all the way down to sort of persona specific problems that we can solve, right? That that's a little bit more tangible. So it does a really nice job of that sort of evolution of understanding and context that helps makes those things more um, closer to the execution, more actionable uh, in terms of how we create products and solutions. All right. Anyone, any more questions on, on our, why we've got our design and product people here to, to duke it out or partner up? Uh, <laughs> uh, anything else? Um, I do think there was another question about persona research and just some sort of best practices about how you get the type of information to really develop a strong persona. 
Yeah, I think, uh, you know, planning for your qualitative research, um, doing qualitative research is really important because you can, uh, you can ask the whys when you're talking to people, you can understand more about uh, their behavior, um, what influences, um, you know, what their motivation is, what their goals are. Um, and so kind of making a, maybe a, a plan for what you want to learn um, in, in research ahead of time. And then knowing that you want to capture things like goals, key problems and current behaviors, because that's going to make your persona much richer. So that, that's going to affect the kinds of conversations that you have with people in that Nahito research or user research with the designers. And we, we provide a template for that to, to give people a, a framework or a starting point to work from. And then, you know, Jim used the words provisional persona earlier. So you start off with your provisional persona, um, you know, based on your observation and your research and those patterns and those trends that you're starting to see your qualitative research. And then you're going to go validate that persona. Uh, you're going to make sure that, you know, yes, this is, this is true and it applies to this larger population. Um, and then take that. It's all, all of them should be research-based, whether it's your provisional persona or your what are we referring to it, Jim? Like your, yeah, your, your fully refined persona. Fully refined. Thank you. That's the word I was looking for. Your refined persona. Both are research-based or research-backed, but you're definitely going to have gone through that validation stage and have a lot more detail when you get to that refined uh, persona. And uh, Niketa, and if I mispronounce the name, my apologies, may have asked my favorite question ever. Uh, so they have a UX and they have product teams in a company. And how can they train both teams to work together? And what are the best practices? Yes, um, I, I think that that kind of like cross-functional awareness, again, of, of, you know, what is a typical, what is the design process and what is the product management process. Um, and, and we found, you know, our designers are very curious once we talk to and research about, you know, how product managers work and what their process is. So I, I think that there's a real desire for that. If you already have, you know, clearly defined processes for each of those teams, you know, just kind of sharing those internally, having lunch sessions where you, you know, share a little bit more about your process and, and compare them and talk about how they sync up or they don't sync up. Um, but if you're, you know, maybe your design, UX design practice is really new, you've only got a few people, you know, you can send them, you know, send them to training to help them, you know, define what their process is going to be. And in a way that hopefully aligns with the, uh, the product management process that you have in-house. Jim, would you also agree there's not like a one size fits all, right? So there's not. Companies have different processes. They've, they've got the same roles, but they follow a different process. Um, it, really, it really depends. Um, certainly there's some you know, basic best practice guidelines out there and we'll cover a lot of that in class, um, but it's not a one size fits all. Definitely, it's not one size fits all. Um, and you know, if, if you've got a new UX team, probably the people, you know, the individuals that you've hired have slightly different processes. And so they're going to have to resolve that and iron out how their process is going to work inside your organization. Um, so it, it always depends on the organization and the people that you've hired. 
I would also say when we, when we do our build course, uh, particularly, I think it is most effective when both the product management and a development lead is in that course together, right? Um, same thing, sometimes we've done pricing courses with product management and sort of the, the pricing strategists in the organization. And what it lets both people are hearing the same story and then they can kind of go and map out and I actually really do truly believe that there's a similar thing with the design course, that if your design partners and your product teams were in this course together, this gives them a lot of understanding of what the best practice connection points are of the language each other's using. And is really a springboard for some of the more like, now let's do this and sort of do a, a gap analysis between the two and really map out who's going to own what, who's going to influence what, and where are we going to have those feedback points and connections. And I think this is just a great, this course is a great primer for those discussions for you to really map out what it's going to be, what it needs to be within your organization. Absolutely. All right. Andrew asks, uh, you know, when you're, you're balancing sort of the budget and the need for speed uh, uh, to get a product to market, when is, when do you balance that against the sort of, uh, so let me just read, but the inflection point between that and where working without a dedicated design function becomes detrimental to the product. Oh, that never happens. <laughs> Ever. Oh, gosh, that's so hard to answer. Um, it's so hard because we know what ultimately can suffer, right? If we don't have a design resource and we don't, I, I'm trying to think what I used to use, what kind of criteria or thought process I used to go to in, in terms of determining that. Sometimes I looked at how many users we have, who are the users, um, you know, can we, what's the current level of usability and adoption and satisfaction? And, you know, I hate to say it like this, but do we have room to get away with it? Like, would it be okay um, is this a brand new product? Is this an enhancement to an existing one? So I think that there are s several factors that come into play when making that decision. Um, certainly understanding the risks and then weighing those, right, um, against the cost. Yeah, what's, what's the risk that you, you take on by creating a product without a design resource, right, right that, that might not be embraced by the market or might not meet the, the, the needs of the, your target user. Yep. Yeah, definitely the type of user, their expectations, the competitive places, like none of that, like, again, you always want to say you've got time. Um, and I think that's, that's interesting on the, on the resource piece. I also think, Jim, I'd love for you to touch briefly, and I know we're running out of time, that a lot of the pushback sometimes from product with design is like, we don't have time for that. Like we don't have time to explore. We've got to move. We're behind schedule already. So can you talk a little bit about how the, the timing and the investment and really what that has, that plays out for in organizations and projects? Yeah, I think you need to figure out, you know, what is our, our, our company strategy, you know, around this particular product or our portfolio. If it's about innovation, right, we want to be more innovative or we want to innovate for a new user audience, then you need to invest in that. Um, and so you need to make space for that innovation. If it's, if it's more, you know, we need to iron out what we've already put out there so it's consistent, then it's a 
then you're not going to spend as much time on ideation and coming up with new ideas. It's more, what is the, you know, solution that lets us fit these puzzle pieces together. So you don't need to spend as much time on IDEO, ideation and, and like blue sky thinking. So it really depends on what your goals are uh, with your product. Well, and Jim, tell me if you agree with this, but um, I think also what Rebecca was getting at was if I add design, this level of design, and we implement this in our process, is it going to slow us down? But it doesn't have to. In fact, I would argue that you can work faster. Not only hopefully are you going to be more successful, but you can work faster because you have the right skill sets at the table. Um, and you just have a clearer picture of what needs to happen. And so I believe that it leads to less, uh, less waste um, and that you can move faster. I, I don't believe that it has to slow you down and that it's, you know, that's a, it's a, a deal breaker. Um, in fact, I think the opposite. So. Especially if you're, if you as the product manager or if the engineers are doing, whoever's doing the design now, you're probably, um, you know, uh, wasting a lot of cycles trying to figure out, well, what's the right direction to go in? What would, what, you know, what's the standard out there? What's the, what's the, what are the right rules for designing this? Um, and so you can alleviate yourself of that worry and the time that you spend on that and then the, the uh, yeah, the extra, the, 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 the delay that comes with that yeah. um, by bringing on design resource. Yeah. And I think if you don't have a design resource, you know, engineers will often talk about technical debt right? The, these things they need to fix in the infrastructure, they just haven't had time because we're turning the crank so quickly. If you don't have a designer, you're building up design debt. So your product is becoming more and more inconsistent visually and also like in the way that it works, it probably ends up looking like a Frankenstein collection of features eventually because you didn't have a designer there. And so you're going to have to, if you don't spend those resources now to to, to get it right, you're going to have to invest them later to correct your product. Yep. And Rebecca, I have one more thing I'll add to that that I just thought about. It actually helped me get buy-in and approval on things when a, a credible design resource, <clears throat> excuse me, actually presented something and put it out there. Like the process happened so much quicker mm -hmm. because people trusted the designer um, that, oh yeah, this is the right thing versus when I tried to perhaps present it as a product manager. So it actually also sped up the process because there was a greater level of trust and buy-in. And so it just made things move a little bit faster um, in that way as well. Like Absolutely. fewer revision cycles, really. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. And sometimes better visualization of the concept that we're that we're getting buy-in on. I mean, it's, it's a powerful uh, aspect of it and it's true throughout the process. All right, Jim and Amy, I really appreciate you guys both taking the time today. Everybody on the call, I really, really appreciate your time. Uh, we're going to send out an email with links to all the resources we talked about. We would love your feedback. Um, and also, I, you know, I don't forget this design course. The, the level of information, the actionable content that you see in there uh, is, is really exciting really tied to the framework to our roles and how we make better products. So please make sure to check that out. You can go to uh, pragmaticinstitute.com slash design. Also wanted to just really flag really quick, January 28th next, uh, which is a Thursday, 
agile product management. This is something I know so many of us struggle with, that product owner versus product manager and really talking to scrum.org, one of the sort of uh, original groups behind us and, and really digging into that. What does that look like and how do we make it how do we make those handoffs successful? How do we figure out the roles and responsibilities? So I definitely encourage you to go there. And also remember, you got questions of any kind every Friday at 10.30 Pacific, 1.30 uh, Eastern. We've got one of our instructors on to do a sort of ask me anything. So those are really fun if you just want to brainstorm something or you're stuck on a problem of, of what you're doing. So we'd love to have you. All right. That does it for this episode. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Uh, and have a great rest of the week. Thank you. Thanks, Rebecca.